Good afternoon and good evening to the rest of you. We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. It is I, your host, Q, coming to you yet again from my mother's basement. And I'm joined by my co-host, P. How goes it out in Nashville? As always, it goes fantastically. I'm excited. It's great to have Caitlin with us. I'm very excited. I want to I give you the honor of introducing our special guest today, someone that I've been looking forward to speaking to for quite some time. Uh, P, take it away. Caitlin is the founder and CEO of Custodia Bank and Trust, uh, recently changed the name. Uh, you are a 22-year Wall Street veteran. Uh, you led the charge in terms of making Wyoming the one of the Bitcoin capitals of the United States. Um, you've spearheaded a ton of different projects uh, in terms of delivering market index data uh, to Vanguard. You were our chairman and president of Symbiont. Used you to be. Ran, <laughs> you used to be. Okay. okay. Yeah. You ran, correct me if I'm wrong, you ran Morgan Stanley's pension solutions business uh, for yep. almost 10 years. And uh, you were at Credit Suisse. You uh, were at Solomon Brothers. Um, you've done an incredible amount of stuff, both from a professional perspective, but also in the Bitcoin space. Um, thank you so much. Not for done yet. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you. My pleasure absolutely. to be here. Yeah. Got a lot more to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Caitlin, I'd, I'd love to just hear from your mouth. Like a lot of us really admire the work that you've done both within Bitcoin and the work you did before, but what are you most proud of? What is the work that you really hang your hat on at the end of the day? Oh gosh. Uh, there's so much, but, but my passion is creating a a fair and stable financial system and everything that I'm doing professionally and so much that I'm doing personally in, in my um, charitable work too is, is aimed at that. I don't believe that the current financial system is fair or stable. And I do believe that these technologies, specifically Bitcoin itself, are going to give us a, a fairer and more stable financial system. And so it's, that's the guiding star. Uh, it just, it, some of the things that I experienced on Wall Street just hit me in the gut that mom and pop were having their pockets picked without even knowing it. And it was just morally wrong. And, uh, and, and I set about to help fix that. And this is part of the reason how I ended up in Bitcoin relatively early. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what was your, your journey to Bitcoin and how did you come to realize the, uh, the things that you just mentioned? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, it started with the financial crisis, actually, in 2008. I got very curious, and uh, it was a, a contradiction uh, that I heard between the Treasury Secretary Geithner in two different interviews just a few weeks apart. And at one, in one interview, he said interest rates had been too low. I think it was on Charlie Rose's show. He conceded interest rates had been too low, and that caused the financial crisis. But then in a separate interview, uh, just a couple of weeks later, he was saying he was trying to encourage the Fed to drop interest rates further still. And that just got it, it just was a logical inconsistency. And that got me digging. And I went on a big intellectual journey of curiosity on different schools of economic thought and and, and literally explored the gamut, um, including MMT um, and, and, of course, Austrian school economics and, and everything in between. And, you know, there's there's nothing that I think 
that I subscribe, well, nothing that I subscribe to in its entirety, uh, because we know there are issues with lots of different schools of economic thought. But it was through that journey that I started to see this thing called Bitcoin. It was definitely by 2012. Um, and I finally took a deep dive into it in 2013 and uh, started started buying it right before Gox <laughs> and learned a really important lesson. And I think a lot of your listeners are probably, you know, I, I think we are in crypto win winter. I think uh, we're, we're in that down part of the four-year cycle. I'm not one of these folks who believe believes that the four-year cycles in Bitcoin are gone. No, they are. They're here. They're permanent. Uh, and this is how Bitcoin works. And it's a feature, not a bug. Uh, but we're in the crypto winter part of that cycle right now. And I sat through that for a couple of years with big losses on my Bitcoin back then. And I'm very glad that I just stuck it out back then. And, uh, and, and it forced me to really just learn a lot of important lessons like not your keys, not your coins. And also to, uh, to really just dig into the ethos of it. And boy, I liked what I saw when I think back to that guiding North star, which is the financial system should be fair and stable. And uh, this is, this is, I think going to be a part of, of what that fair and stable system is ultimately going to look like. What a concept. The financial system should be fair and stable. That seems like yeah. it's crazy to me that that is a revolutionary perspective. <laughs> well, and a lot of folks probably, if you're not core Bitcoiners are probably thinking, how on earth are you saying Bitcoin stable? Because the price of course, relative to the US dollar isn't stable. Uh, relative to most fiat currencies, it's not stable. And I, it will be over time. It is, of course, stable relative to itself. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. But here's my, here's my broader point. It's the stability of the system, the stability of the network. I have a, a far greater degree of confidence in the stability of the network itself relative to the stability of the traditional financial system because it is band-aided together. It's, it's based on old technology. We see it break down. And to me, uh, the engineers are the most important people in Bitcoin, always have been, always will be. And the folks that are able to essentially, we're, last I looked, we're approaching six sigma of network uptime. Um, and, and, you know, that's considering they never take the code down, never take the network down, right? There's no network administrator. It do, they don't take it down to do software upgrades, right? That all happens so carefully and happens while the network is still operating. All of those things are, are tremendous attributes of the network. And, uh, and, and I point to me a single centralized institution that has Six Sigma network uptime over this long a period of time, it's, um, it's an incredible piece of software. And again, the, the core devs are the ones, and of course, Satoshi, who gets credit for that. Yeah, I feel like that doesn't get enough, the Bitcoin network does not get enough credit for that fact. It is a truly remarkable thing that it is as stable and consistent as it has been. And For sure. Be. Well, and a, a lot of folks are, are, are here for... Certainly when, when we get into the bull, bull part of the cycle, it does attract a lot of, of folks that are in it for the speculation. And uh, that's fine, uh, but um, most speculators end up going down the rabbit hole and then sticking around. And let's hope that that's indeed the case this time. There, there are always a lot of people who in the, in the bear cycle end up underwater, just like I did in that first cycle. This is my third cycle of Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm used to the... The bear markets, uh, but they're painful, and a lot of folks, I'm sure, are licking wounds from that. And I sure hope that uh, a lot of folks, although I do fear that that even more folks got caught in 
the leverage games this time. And um, they're, you know, they're subject to the leverage flushes that have happened and I think are still to come. Uh, but all of that is healthy. And uh, those of us who are, who are hodlers are uh, not, you know, we didn't play those games. And I think it's so important for, for us to speak out that those, those short-term, uh, you know, leverage-based players, as, as, as all of that leverage is flushed out of the system, this is a good thing um, in spite of the fact that it's certainly painful for some people. But um, boy, we had a lot of leverage in, in this market and uh, good riddance to it, in my humble opinion. Caitlin, do you anticipate, you know, as more and more money gets flowed into Bitcoin, that these leveraged positions will not necessarily be the majority of positions? Or do you think there will be even more leverage coming to the market for the next bull run? Well, Bitcoin hasn't, it hasn't itself, it, it, the, the intermediaries in Bitcoin haven't really been regulated this time. And I think next time there will be more regulation, right? We just saw Senators Lummis and Gillibrand introduce their bill today. And uh, the intermediaries are registered. They're registered with FinCEN, but registered with FinCEN does not mean regulated. And they're licensed in most cases as money transmitters. That also does not mean regulated. Just because they have registrations or licenses does not mean regulated. Regulated means You've got regulators examining you. You've got capital requirements. You, you've got compliance requirements, and all of that is coming. And uh, and so I think there uh, there will be a lot less um, cruft, a lot less scams, um, a lot less of the crazy leverage. I mean, there, let let's look at it. There were there there have been, and in fact, in some cases, still are um, exchanges that are offering 125 to one levered futures offshore. Those are the kinds of things that would never be allowed onshore. The, the, the futures exchanges can lever up to, last I look, around two and a half times. So 125 times offshore, two and a half times onshore. Well, there's a reason why they're limited to, the, to, to those leverage, lower leverage numbers onshore. Um, and in part, it's because they, the real users of, of those futures contracts are those who are naturally hedging and naturally hedging, boy, you don't need that kind of leverage at all. Um, and so I think it's interesting to, to ask, and we've seen some of the CEOs of those exchanges who have been offering these crazy high levered contracts, even 20 to one contracts. A couple of them came down from 125 to one to 20 to one, but that's still almost 10 times what's available onshore. Right. And I, I, you know, this is the kind of stuff that causes the crackdown, um, the regulatory crackdown and it's coming for sure. And I think the, those on Capitol Hill uh, are, who, who are supporters of this industry are trying to do it responsibly and do it in, in a way that enables the good behavior and cracks down hard on the bad behavior. It's not that good, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> I feel like when, when the leverage is that high, it's like when you, when you get margin called, it's like they travel back in time and margin call your grandparents and then liquidate them so you're never born and then take all the Bitcoin that you would have ever earned over that entire period of time. And then they just goes into the the coffers yeah you. you know <laughs> uh it's if they could they would let's put it that way yeah I, you know i think um there will be a, a when we look back on this a, a lot of examination of what actually happened how come these big fortunes were built up so fast on these crazy leverage contracts that never would have been allowed on shore 
And what's the ethics of, of allowing those contracts, um, you know, of those offering those contracts, right? Because if you look at the math, right, and a lot of us are, are Bitcoiner, uh, who are Bitcoiners are pretty good at math. So start, start to actually look at the payoff probabilities of those contracts, even at a 20 to one leveraged futures contract. Um, you're looking at situations where the house wins a, a vast majority of the time, certainly on the 100, 125 to one contracts, the house wins 99 plus percent of the time. Just go do the math, right? Um, now think back to 1950s Vegas when the mob was in charge. I think the mob would have loved to have been able to offer contracts that had 99 to one odds where the house wins, right? And yet it's Absolutely. happening in in the Bitcoin world. And, and this is not core Bitcoin folks. That's, that's, that's folks with, a, with very high time preference uh, sorry, very low time preference. Folks that are very short-term oriented, looking to make the quick buck. Um, and that's not what the Bitcoin world is. And, and it always does confuse the, the folks that are brought in during the bull market because they think the speculation is Bitcoin. No, it's not. The network is Bitcoin. And I, as I like to say, the price of Bitcoin is the, low, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin. It's the network. It's what you can do with it. It's how it's being scaled. Those are the best things about Bitcoin. And I just don't talk that much about the price. It's the least interesting thing. And if you're a hodler, then it, you, know, you, you yeah, just it watch matter. it from a distance and it doesn't matter exactly. I heard everything you said, Caitlin. I have nothing but the utmost respect for you and the work you do. Here it comes. Oh. And then I'm going to ask some price <laughs> questions because you brought up this four-year cycle. And I, yeah. I kind of side with you, though. I do actually believe that the four-year cycle is not dead. I do right. think that what it looks like in each four-year iteration may look different. But I do think there is validity in that uh, having cycles, introducing a decreased amount of supply, while at the same time you're onboarding more and more users. I'm curious what you're looking at. What are the things you're paying attention to that helps you draw that conclusion that the four-year cycle is not dead? Oh, it's the inflation rate. It, it is the stock to flow. I know that's a, a little bit of a controversial model. In Sacrilege. The, yeah, yeah. But, that, you know, and some, some people for whom I have tremendous respect don't believe that it, it works, but I do. And that, be, that is because that's how commodities are valued. And I do believe Bitcoin is a commodity. Um, money itself is a good that ultimately, it's a commodity that ultimately becomes a good that's used as a medium of exchange over time. And, um, and so it's a commodity and, and it's stock to flow really matters. I think that is what gives it value. And um, it, 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 I think a, a lot of the reason why folks have, have shied away from that model recently is that it didn't work to, to call the peak. And so the interesting question is, if you posit that it's not defunct, because of course the stock to flow does change every four years in Bitcoin, that is a fact. Um, and then look at why didn't it call the peak this time? Who, who cut the top off the peak? And does that mean that the model doesn't work? The answer is all the derivatives, all that leverage cut the top off the peak. And it doesn't mean the model doesn't work. Um, it just means that the that the derivatives had control of the price in the short term, and cut the top off the peak. It'll be interesting to see if it cut the bottom off the valley as well. Um, but but um, ultimately, the derivatives bring even more volatility to to the market, and we've seen that that the short term volatility 
um, from, from all the you know, margin stopouts, when we see big stopouts, that short-term volatility is a lot higher than it used to be before we had a lot of derivatives in Bitcoin. And as you guys know, derivatives start, didn't start to come into Bitcoin until the end of the last cycle. And so we really didn't, we had, we had you know, pure non-derivatives um, influence cycles in the prior two, but this is a cycle that's been very driven by the derivatives. And as a result, the stock to flow model hasn't performed as well. That doesn't mean it's defunct, not at all. It just means that, uh, that it's kind of like the efficient markets hypothesis. A lot of people have thrown that model out as well because it doesn't seem to describe the stock market. Well, we, have, we don't have free, a free market in, in interest rates. And if you look at the efficient markets hypothesis, it does assume that there's a free market in interest rates. And when you don't have a free market in interest rates, it doesn't mean the model's bad. It just means that the model's not working until you have a free market in interest rates. And I think the same is true with Bitcoin. Stock to flow isn't going to, it isn't bad. It is just not working as well as it used to and won't again until we flush all the derivatives leverage out of the market. And that could take years. There's a saying in data analysis that's garbage in, garbage out. And it sounds like exactly like what you've just described there, Caitlin. We're putting yeah. garbage into the system. We're putting garbage uh, data analysis, whatever we want to call it. And in turn, we're getting really shitty results. Um, I'm listening to you and I'm curious. And I swear to you, last price question, then we're going to switch <laughs> to more regulatory stuff. Um, do you think that the derivatives capped the upside of Bitcoin during this most recent bull run that for all intents and purposes, we all believe on this call that it has ended? Yes, that's exactly what I think. It, 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 it cut the cap, it cut the top because all the leverage. So here, here and here's why, right? Um, a lot of people think that because the Bitcoin protocol pro precludes more than 21 million Bitcoins from being created. In fact, J Jameson Lopp likes to point out it's not ever going to be exactly 21 million, right? It actually stops right below 21 million. So fair point. But, um, but anyway, there won't be more than, than 21 million. And yet, if you added up all of the Bitcoin IOUs in all the different intermediaries, it's far more than 21 million. One of the problems is no one knows because there's no reporting, there's no transparency. Uh, and, and, and I, but I guarantee because uh, you, you actually see some of the intermediaries admit they rehypothecate. What does that mean? It means they're creating multiple claims to the same Bitcoin, multiple IOUs for the very same Bitcoin, right? So we don't know how many claims to Bitcoin in, in, in exchanges and custodians exist. And if we knew what the precise number was, then we would see, I guarantee, we would see that it's greater than the 19 point, I think we're at 19.2 million now of Bitcoin's mine. Um, and so, so the actual, the, the real supply is far less than, than the IOU version, um, right? And that, so basically fractional reserving crept into Bitcoin through all these derivatives and lending platforms. Okay, so I think that's a given. I think most people wouldn't, wouldn't quibble with that. Um, the question though is, uh, why does that necessarily mean the price of real on-chain, the 19.2 million Bitcoins is somehow suppressed? How did it cut the top off? And the answer is there are people who don't understand the distinction between a Bitcoin IOU, which is everything you own at an intermedi intermediary, 
your exchange, your custodian, your derivatives platform, what, when you send them your Bitcoin, they give you an IOU back. It's not real Bitcoin. Um, the only Bitcoin you own directly is the Bitcoin that you self-custody. And, uh, and, and so what happens when those intermediaries satisfy real demand with supply that they created out of thin air? What's happening, if you think back to your supply demand curves in, in your economics class, anytime the supply curve gets pushed out to the right, what happens if you hold demand constant? The price drops. Just go do your little supply demand curves. You'll see the price drops when the supply curve goes out, pushes out to the side for whatever reason, whether it's legit or not, um, you, you, you actually see the, the supply curve go out to the right, price drops. Okay, so what that means is people are having their pockets picked. They think that they're getting real on-chain Bitcoin. They're not. And the, 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 your, your counterparties don't necessarily have one Bitcoin for every one Bitcoin IOU that they've offered you. And that's the piece that we don't know. And this, this bull market, so much leverage crept into that. We've already seen some failures. It's been in DeFi. Uh, but but it, it, each of the prior bull cycles that turned to a bear cycle ended up revealing exchange insolvencies. And I'm pretty sure that there are exchange insolvencies that just haven't been revealed yet because of all this leverage. Uh, there is no lender of last resort. I consider that a feature, not a bug. Uh, but, but the only way you benefit from that lender of last resort is if you self-custody your Bitcoin. If you're holding it in, in an intermediary, then you're, you're, you've lent it to a, a leveraged intermediary that may or may not have it. Um, and you know, we look at the, at the collapse of Gox in, I think it was what, 2014? Um, and, and yeah, it was early 2014, right? Um, and then Quadrigo was the collapse uh, in, the, in this previous bull cycle. Um, and now, you know, we're, we're now getting into the bear cycle here. I think we're already there and we're starting to see some balance sheet stress at some of the intermediaries. And I do predict that there will be an intermediary fail, failure past this prologue. History does rhyme. And there's a reason why the intermediaries failed. They were running fractional and, and it wasn't clear to the world that they were running fractional until they hit the wall. And then you realize just how fractional they were running. They were insolvent. And, um, and that happens in these bull to bear cycles. And, uh, you know, I, a boy, I wish it didn't because unfortunately um, we should have a lot more people hodling and, and self-custodying and, and learning that lesson. But I'm one of those who had to learn the lesson the hard way by losing Bitcoins in Mt. Gox. And boy, did I, I consider that cheap tuition because I dug in and finally figured out how to self-custody and, and it made a big difference. I think that's such a good point. And I wonder, you know, you've mentioned regulation a couple of times. Do you think that regulation is going to help fix that problem? Yeah, it, it will, because most of the intermediaries want to be regulated. They're all going at, many of them are, are going after the, the big mainstream pools of money. And the big mainstream pools of money can only deal with regulated intermediaries. They're fiduciaries for their customers. I'm talking about 401k plans, you know, corporate treasurers. Those are the really big pools of money. And they're not going to touch an unregulated um, um, player, and they're probably almost likely never going to get involved in DeFi, true DeFi yet either. 
Um, they're not prepared operationally to self-custody. So um, I think we will see more of that over time. Uh, and we can talk a little bit of, uh, more about why in a moment, but, um, but we're just not there yet. Most intermediary, uh, mo most, most folks actually don't self-custody their Bitcoins. And unfortunately, many have to learn the lesson the hard way. Unfortunately, again, I would, if there's one thing that your listeners take away, it's go educate yourself. There's no substitute for just digging in and learning. There's so much available now that there wasn't for me two cycles ago when I'm not an engineer and it was intimidating for me to try to figure this out. It's, it is hard. Uh, but uh, I like the way Andreas talks about it when, 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 especially in emerging markets, when people have all of their net worth tied up in this, they generally figure out how to secure it. And it's the analogy to what our ancestors uh, used when they had gold or they had, you know, money stashed in a mattress, they figured out how to secure it. Uh, it wasn't always foolproof, but they did a pretty darn good job. They didn't just default to storing it in a custodian. Yeah, as you said, history may not repeat, but it rhymes. And the bank runs that will turn into exchange runs and the fractional reserve currency system that we're seeing replicated is honest. It makes me laugh at the stupidity of some people. If you do not have a wallet, just go to bitcoinmagazine.com, the store. We sell uh, cold cards there. Buy it. Just do it already. There are videos all across the internet for you to actually be able to like follow step by step of how to set it up. It's so easy now. There's no excuse. All right. My mini tangent is over. I wanted to talk now uh, to you, Caitlin, about what we were seeing come out of Senator Lummis's office, this new crypto bill that's being pushed forward. Um, it seems at first glance very similar to the legislation that was passed in the state of Wyoming. And I'd love for you maybe to, to set the stage between these two bills. Well, I took a look at it this morning. It's been a work in progress. I've seen different drafts of it as most of us in the industry have um, over the last few months. And boy, has it changed a lot and it's gotten a lot better. And I think it has an opportunity to get even better. Um, but I think it, it strikes the right balance. It, it goes after some of the scams and market manipulation that we know is happening and that's healthy, um, but, but it does so in an enabling way. And, uh, and, and I, I hope that uh, it, that it can continue to be refined and improved and get passed. We all need to recognize that Washington moves very slowly. <laughs> this is going to take some time. Um, so uh, your question, though, about some of the elements of Wyoming ending up in there, there's not that's not an accident because two of the people who were heavily involved in the Wyoming blockchain bills in 2018, 2019 are working for Senator Lummis right now. And so a lot of the research that the state of Wyoming did back then, uh, of course, uh, did influence what they ended up writing at a federal level. So all that work that Wyoming did, which by the way, the, the, the Bitcoin industry was pretty actively involved in, in helping the state of Wyoming understand what's the right way to think about this. How do we do this in an enabling way without restricting it and sending it all offshore. Uh, that's that that did some of those themes do show up in in the bill for sure. I'm curious just off the bat one of the the biggest red flags on this bill for me personally was there seems to be an out for any sort of alternative cryptocurrency shitcoin as we like to call them on this show <laughs> um, to essentially have an out and find a way to be categorized as a commodity. 
Uh, I'm curious if you think that this is an acceptable measure or if this is something that could get taken advantage of. Well, I saw that this morning, actually. That was one of the big things that jumped out at me when I looked at the at the version that got released, that the default is that it's a commodity and the SEC essentially gets the burden of proof to prove that it's a security. But the Howey test is, is enshrined in the bill. Uh, so I, I think the SEC would probably say a lot of those things are securities and of course, the SEC has used its enforcement its enforcement action against a lot of them already. But um, I've said this before. Surprisingly, the SEC has actually been pretty hands off um, because I think there are a lot of things out there that they could have gone after that they haven't yet. They do work slowly, um, and so oftentimes it takes two or three years uh, before you'll see the SEC take action. Uh, and they certainly have gone after some of the bigger scams, but they haven't gone after them fast enough in my humble opinion. Um, they did actually subpoena Terra, Terra Luna back in December of last year. I don't know if you guys were aware of that, but uh, uh, needless to say, that's the, ultimately I think it's a good thing that the registration requirements are a little lessened. Um, and that gets down to just how expensive it is and how cumbersome it is to do securities offerings. And there are a lot of folks who've, who've been, um, criticizing this for a long time. And we've had the crowdfunding rules, but the crowdfunding rules haven't really worked because most folks, most securities lawyers will tell you there's still a lot of, of risk in using those crowdfunding rules. And so um, I'm hoping that, that some of those get addressed because it, it isn't fair that only the, the richest Americans can partake in private securities offerings um, and so striking a better balance between uh, the way securities offerings work now and the way that they've proposed them from what I saw this morning in that bill is, is I think, a, a healthy thing. Um, but we'll have to watch that, that debate <laughs> because the SEC, I'm sure, uh, I don't know if they weighed in yet or not, but I'm sure they will. There was another just component of this where the SEC's relationship with uh, the CFTC is getting further, I think, described in relation to cryptocurrencies in general. There's a, a little caveat, though, that I, I haven't seen anyone else up in arms about this, but you know me, I like to react and then I'll calm down. So <laughs> there's a new tax that's going to be introduced. And I'm not talking about the capital gains $200 cap. No, there's a tax that the CFTC is going to pass along to exchanges that begin to list commodities, i.e. if a an altcoin gets listed as a commodity now, this exchange, i.e. Coinbase, potentially has to pay a tax. But historically speaking, no business out of the goodness or kindness of their heart has ever, we'll, we'll cover the tax for, for our users. No, there's a reason why you pay sales tax every single time you go to a grocery store. Uh, I'm curious if this is the beginning of a very slippery slope where we start to see just different taxation around cryptocurrency in general? Well, again, they don't tax the Bitcoin protocol itself. You know, core peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin isn't what this bill would be after. What they're doing is, is not unusual vis-a-vis -vis financial services regulation because it's the regulatees that pay the fees to cover the budget for the regulator. 
And that's what it is um, from what I can tell. Yeah. Is it a slippery slope? Yeah, I get your point. But even the Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions have that. There's a, there's a, a fee paid. Um, you can call it a fee or a tax, whatever it is. It's money that, that, um, that comes out of the Special Purpose Depository Institutions that goes to the Wyoming Division of Banking to cover their expenses as the supervisor. And then any excess, um, right now it doesn't tip over into Wyoming's general fund, but over time as that grows, I, I suspect that the legislators will grab it, right? Um, because uh, over time, if this, if, if, if it grows the way I think it's gonna grow, uh, there'll be a lot of excess funds um, sitting in, in, the, in the regulator's budget. So, uh, but that's, that's what it is. They're trying to basically um, pay to staff up the, the CFTC to be able to be the regulator. What do you get if you're an exchange in exchange for registering with or licensing um, and being regulated? Remember those, those three differences I talked about at the beginning, register with FinCEN, right now your money transmitter license, but you're not regulated. Here, this is basically a regulation. You're, you're agreeing to be regulated by the CFTC. What does that mean? I think it's the kind of thing, again, you get access to the mainstream money that's fiduciary and has to deal with only regulated financial institutions. But the other piece is you get some capital to back you up. Right now, the money transmitters don't have capital. They just have reserves. Um, and in fact, some of the largest intermediaries in this industry that have publicly disclosed their their finances have negative capital. Um, that always blows my mind as someone coming from the financial services world, which has always had to have a certain capital requirement. And then, you know, you see in the crypto industry, some of the big players have negative capital. Um, so when this world comes to be, they're going to have to raise capital and there will be capital to back the, the obligations of the exchange. Um, so, you know, it, it, again, um, there are pros and cons to all this, but what you get in exchange for being regulated and having those capital requirements and being examined is you get access to the mainstream money. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what many are going after. Some won't bother. Some will just go offshore. Some, some in DeFi will try to just keep dodging. Um, and Gabe Shapiro put out an interesting thread today. He talks a lot about DeFi law. And, and he basically said, look, some of this stuff is just not enforceable against, against the DeFi, you know, um, decentralized exchanges, the DEXs, uh, because there isn't anybody to register and there isn't a human being involved with them and they don't have listing requirements. And so some of that stuff, they're not going to be able to be um, to, to be um, uh, enforcing them. Uh, it's just something that has to has to play out over time. But I think most of the big money will be in the centralized exchanges and they will, they will get registered. And as a result, um, one of the big things that probably will drop out of this, which as you guys know, I've said is a double-edged sword, is that once you get some of the market manipulation out of the exchanges, I think the SEC will, will finally approve an ETF. But it seems to me that the SEC has made that very clear, that they're not approving a Bitcoin ETF until there's a there's a market manipulation cop on the beat. And the Lummis Gillibrand bill proposes that that market manipulation cop on the beat be the CFTC. So one thing I want to ask about is, I mean, you have done an incredible job of working within the legislative system um, in Wyoming and, and, and broader. I, I have this, this profound distrust of the um the effectiveness of regulation in general, because in, I, I feel like it, it is likely to sort of be taken advantage of, even with the best of intentions, which is what, you know, <laughs> the work that you've been doing, 
um, it feels like eventually people will find ways to use that um, yeah. to, to their advantage. And so I'm curious, you know, for me, part of it is when we're talking about having like a, you know, the idea you mentioned earlier, kind of the idea of a free market and how that's kind of an illusion um, in a lot of these situations. How do you, how do you sort of square that circle or wh- wh- where do you come in on the idea that um, ultimately Bitcoin creates these incentives that should drive a free market versus uh, regulations and protections for in- investors? Well, you raise a very good point, which is that regulator- regulators often get captured by their regulatees uh, and, um, and end up bas- basically becoming um, enforcers of the status quo and, um, and, and block new innovations and block out new entrants that might be doing things a little bit differently. Uh, and, and that's just the, the nature of, of regulation. It's very interesting to see how, I mean, I'm living that, right? Um, uh, it's very interesting to see how things have evolved um, because the states in the United States and I know this is a global sh- show, but for the non-U.S. folks, um, the U.S. has 50 different state regulators, and then it's got a federal regulator. And in the in the insurance system, all the regulation is done by the 50 states individually. Um, in the banking system, there's something called a dual banking system, where you can either be a state chartered bank or a federally chartered bank. They all can do the same things, so they have what's called parity. Um, and then the broker dealers, it's all done federally. So that's a confusing thing. Oh, by the way, money transmitters, are, it's also done state by state, all 50 states. So all this gets confusing for, for non-Americans. But here's the punchline as it relates to the question you just asked. The state financial services regulators, in almost all cases, have in their mission statement economic development. So they're going to be more open to innovation because it's part of their mission to not be a gatekeeper that keeps all the new entrants and all the innovators out. But the federal regulators, none of them to my knowledge have economic development in their mission at all. So what ends up happening is that they do become gatekeepers that tend to keep innovators out and tend to reinforce the status quo. That is the nature of the systems that were created. Now, Congress, Congress could change that, it could create Um, an economic development or innovation remit as part of the mission of the regulators, but it hasn't done so. And I don't recall whether the Lomas-Gillibrand bill includes something like that, but keep in mind, it's open for comment. They want comments. This is not the final version. It's just the first version they've released for discussion. And so that is one sort of, that is one one thing that may make sense is, especially if the CFTC becomes the regulator of the Bitcoin spot markets, make sure that it's got an innovation remit as part of its mission, um, as opposed to just basically enforcing the existing laws, because that's when it's the, when industries tend to become insular. And what I just described, by the way, is not unique to financial services. I think all the regulated industries, it happens that way. Um, the cynical way to talk about it is the phrase regulatory capture. Um, but again, I, I don't think the regulators necessarily intend to always reinforce the status quo in their regulation, what they're doing is responding to the system that Congress set up for them in the first place. And I, I do think the states have a better system because they have, a, they have in their mission statement a requirement to think about economic development. Interesting. So, so it sounds like you feel like the regulatory systems that are in place can be used to affect positive change 
Um, and that's the kind of the direction that we should be going or using a balance of that and kind of incentivizing these, um, you know, holding your own keys and these free market systems, that that's the way to go rather than kind of leaning all in on, on trying to just sort of having a, a system that requires like radical personal financial responsibility. Well, I think that's right. But by the way, those two can coexist, right? Absolutely. Because you can, Absolutely. you can own Bitcoin and you can self-custody, right? You can memorize your seed phrase and not even have it written down anywhere. And no one can prove that you have it, right? Because it's in your head. Um, so you could, it is, it is a system that where you can own your own Bitcoin and, and, and um, understand where it is at all times based upon that, as opposed to having to do business with an intermediary. But once you start, once you start getting into the intermediary world, that's when the regulations start to come into play. And also very importantly, anytime a US dollar is involved, every US dollar ultimately has to clear through the Federal Reserve. It's fiat currency, Absolutely. it goes through the Fed, um, whether directly or indirectly. And so of course it's gonna be regulated. None of us should expect that this is not going to be regulated. Um, but uh, one of the things I like about Bitcoin is that you have the option not to have to store it at a centralized exchange. You have the option to self-custody it. You have the option to go peer-to-peer. -peer. Is it as easy as if you were using a centralized platform? No, it's not. But the, no one will ever be able to take that option away, right? Because you can memorize your seed phrase. Um, and that's a really important point. It's, it, it can be you can opt out of the system. That's not true of fiat systems. And that's a powerful concept. And especially in countries uh, where, where the leaders are despots, um, it, yeah. that, that it is a real force for human freedom. It is a force to devolve power back to the individual. And I think that's a really healthy thing. And what I'm laying out for you is that there's a nice tension between the truly decentralized users of Bitcoin who only transact on chain and who self custody versus the centralized users who are going to be dealing with regulators. Um, and, and that creates a nice tension that the, the fact that you can opt out um, keeps the centralized system honest. Love it. Caitlin, I want to present a question to you. It, it's a little bit more maybe philosophical, but do you genuinely believe in the future when Bitcoin is generally accepted by the world that everyone will understand the nuances and the little details of how to operate on chain? Or will it kind of adhere to a similar system that we have with our cars or the internet? Like a majority of people don't really know what happens when you press the start right. or turn your ignition? That's a great question. Uh, I do think most people, there are a lot more people will learn uh, to Andreas's point. You know, when, when, when you've got your whole net worth stored in this, you're going to educate yourself. And anyone in the world who's got an internet connection is capable of educating yourself on this. It, you just have to spend the time. And ironically, it's people, I think, in emerging markets that especially in, in economies where there, there has been hyperinflation recently or in the process of, that's where people are gonna be more incentivized to learn it. So more people will learn it over time, but I'm also a realist that a lot of people just are afraid of technology, especially there, there are demographic, um, uh, I'm talking about generational demographics here. There are demographic differences that you know some folks 
Um, you know, their VCR is still flashing 12 o'clock, right? They never, they never learned how to, how to get comfortable with the latest technology. And of course, that's old technology I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about, but that's what I'm alluding to, that some folks, I think, are just so intimidated by technology that it's not easy. And so we'll never get to the point where it's 100%. That's my sense. There will always be service providers. That's why you haven't seen me be so anti-bank in my, um, in my, in my uh, the way I talk about the industry, because banks themselves are not illegitimate. It's some of the things the banks do that are illegitimate sometimes with, um, with some of the, the fractional um, uh, um, solvency games that are played, the leverage games that are played. But um, that doesn't mean they don't provide a valuable service. And even when we didn't have fractional reserve banking, the money warehouses were service providers. They provided a service of storing people's gold or valuables. And that's what I've always thought a custodian should be. That's what a bank should be, um, a, money, a money warehouse, a service provider, not a counterparty. And that is part of the ethos of, of the Wyoming legislation. And like you said, some of those elements did end up in the Lummis Gillibrand bill, which made me happy. I want to give you the opportunity, Caitlin, with one sweep of your pen, you can make anything into law around Bitcoin. Of course, what would that change be? Oh boy. Um, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the most foundational, which is that Bitcoin needs to be backwards compatible with the legal system because Bitcoin doesn't exist in a vacuum. Everywhere in the world, there are laws, unless you go on to you know, a seasteading, you know, create a new island or something like that, right? Everywhere in the world, laws already exist. And so that means that the judicial system could be an attack vector on your Bitcoin. And um, you could have a judge uh, say, for example, in a divorce settlement, you could have a judge create an order to force you to send your Bitcoin to your ex-spouse, for example. Um, those things are very real. And what we need is a roadmap for judges to adjudicate disputes. And so the answer to your question is, I think the most fundamental thing is the most boring, which is define what Bitcoin is in commercial law and property law. And that's done at a state level. There are seven states now that have done that in the United States. Um, there are 43 that haven't, and that plus the U.S. territories that haven't. They will. There is a um, uh, something called the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 12, that will be finalized most likely this summer, and uh, then it'll start percolating its way through state legislators in the other legislatures in the other 43 states. Um, but this is enabling. This is the kind of stuff that you, even the the anarchists among us um, should welcome, right? Because it, it defines the property rights. There's nothing that, um, that violates the non-aggression principle by defining Bitcoin as property. In fact, what it does is, is it um, prevents that attack vector of the judicial system ultimately coming after you. And I have to give my hat, hats off to Trace Mayer for helping me understand this way back in the early years when I, I think I first met Trace in 2014. Um, and so he and I were talking a lot. He's a lawyer and an accountant by training as, as many of you know. And so he had this, um, he's been thinking a lot about this for years. What are, the, what are the attack vectors that are coming down the pike that don't matter when Bitcoin is you know, a dollar, but they matter a lot when Bitcoin's $100,000, right? Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what he was trying to get ahead of. And by the way, a lot, a lot of folks ask me about Trace because I know, uh, you know a, lot of, um, a lot of folks will recognize that we've been friends for a long time. Uh, and I was kind of surprised. Trace did pop back up again, by the way. Um, uh, and uh, you'll, you'll find him in the, in the tweets about Utah's 
bill to clarify the commercial law status of Bitcoin. Um, he's standing behind the governor when the when the bills got signed. So I, I didn't tweet that out. I was wait, waiting to see if any of the of his uh, followers from from yesteryear would catch that, and I don't think anybody did. But there he was. Um, so he's been working uh, still to get the the commercial law status of Bitcoin to be defined so the judicial system doesn't become an attack vector. I have a, a special treat for you then as well, Caitlin, but Trace and his wife are currently watching and listening on YouTube right now. Are they? Hey, yeah. <laughs> good to see you guys. <laughs> That's um, awesome. I, I have one more regulatory question because we've been talking about the positive side of what regulation could look like from people who maybe understand Bitcoin, like Senator Lummis. We saw some pretty stupid legislation come out of the state of New York <laughs> last week. Yeah. Um, I'd love just your initial reaction thoughts and maybe like uh, a good scolding word to the idiots that are pushing this through up in New York. Well, look, I mean, the United States is so divided on so many things and, um, you know, New York has the right to do what it wants to do, but boy, that was not smart. Um, you know, they want to ban math. They want to regulate math. <laughs> um, they're regulating what, what types of data can be processed in a data center. This is a slippery slope. And, uh, boy, you won't see that in the states that are welcoming to Bitcoin. And it's not a red state, blue state divide. I, I, I oftentimes take the opportunity to remind people of that. I'll bet you, Senator Gillibrand, if somebody asked her today what she thought of that, she would say that the, that the state legislature was being short-sighted. I don't know that she would say that, but I'll bet she would say that um, because uh, it's pushing, pushing the Bitcoiners, the, the Bitcoin miners out of New York, and it's doing it for the wrong reasons. We've not done a good job as an as a industry explaining the energy use, which we all defend. And um, frankly, it's far more efficient. Bitcoin's far more efficient from an energy use perspective than the traditional financial system. You just have to dig in and be and, and recognize that the average financial transaction, especially a foreign exchange transaction, gets processed six times. That's mean, that means it's hitting data centers. The exact same data is hitting a data center six times. And it is true that the financial services industry is the biggest user of data centers and the data centers mostly use grid power and grid power is mostly not green. Um, and so when you, when you really look at each transaction and try to be honest with yourself about how much power Bitcoin uses, it's actually more efficient per transaction than, than the traditional financial system is because of all that duplication and reconciliation of the exact same transactional data. That's one of the things that, that Bitcoin can help um, remove and reduce. And that's a wonderful thing. Caitlin, uh, I'm sorry. It just got brought to my attention. Something that your business uh, that, sorry, I want to make sure I'm reading this correctly, but it looks like Custodia is about to sue the Fed. Uh, could you maybe share a comment about this? I can't share a comment about it. I can confirm it happened this morning. So go, wow. go ahead and uh, take a look at the publicly disclosed information. Wow. All right. What if what if we like we we make wild suppositions and then you kind of like blink yes for for <laughs> no. for one, for yes and no. twice for no. Or... <laughs> All right. No. Chris, good try. Good try. Guys. <laughs> UP. UP. He's losing speaking privileges. <laughs> Scaring our guests. No, I'm kidding. Of course. This is super exciting though. I uh, I'm gonna be super interested to see what uh, what comes out of this. Well, without going into too many details on this suit because it is an, an open suit and. We respect that on this show, we will not ask those types of questions. I'm curious, just more broadly, if you agree with the current actions of the Fed trying to raise rates at the rate in which they're doing, 
given their actions over the last two years? Well, look, we're in an inflationary cycle for sure. Uh, that's kind of obvious. Every time you go to the the grocery store or fill up your car with the, with gas, you you recognize that the U.S. is in an inflationary cycle, and certainly uh, most of the developed world is as well. And and it, it it's a it's a different cycle than the past cycles, which have been more demand side. Um, I thought Eric Peters, who's a big Bitcoiner, uh, did a really good job in one of his pieces a few weeks ago where he said central bankers kept probing how much could they stimulate demand um, in a deflationary environment, which is where we were with interest rates coming down to negative levels in some places, especially Europe and Japan. How, you know, how much could they keep stimulating demand um, and, and not hit inflation? And they kept probing and they kept being able to do it without hitting you know high inflation and now we have a supply side um correction and the problem is that it's not it's a blunt instrument to try to adjust demand when you don't have control over supply and ultimately um things like food and energy are real things you cannot conjure them out of thin air and um those are those are the very real problems that we're facing so i wouldn't want to have to make those decisions and uh, and I'll refrain from from making specific comments about them, other than to say um, it's a complicated world. It just got a lot more complicated than than the traditional models uh, uh, implied that it would. Caitlin, you're a better person than I because I have no problem saying, Jerome, how you're a complete buffoon and have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> um, I want to now ask you though on topic of midterms coming up. You know, in California, I guess today is voting day. I wouldn't know. I refuse to vote anymore. I've lost lost all hope in our political system, especially in the state. But I'm curious if in the midterms or more specifically in two years for the next presidential election, what role do you think Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is going to have on that stage? Yeah, that's a great question because there are different estimates, but give or take around 40 million Americans of the 350 million Americans or so um, own own crypto okay not all not all bitcoin but crypto um and so that's quite a constituency as a as a as a group our industry did really show its face and its power last summer with the um with the infrastructure bill with the um potential to make miners into brokers etc cetera, etc cetera. um and 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 didn't get that entirely fixed but boy did we send a message collectively to Washington, D.C. by lighting up the phones, right, and email systems, just phone calls and emails going in from this industry into Congress saying, don't do this. Um, and, and what came out of that was so fascinating. That's the first time Senator Lummis from Wyoming teamed up with Senator Wyden from Oregon. Um, and actually, I was really, really pleasantly surprised when I saw that Gillibrand um, from New York um, teamed up with Lummis for the bill that we were talking about earlier, because I was anticipating that it might have been Senator Wyden, because Senator Lummis has forged really strong bonds over this issue with um, folks that wouldn't have necessarily been expected to form strong bonds, right? They come from, in a lot of cases, opposite political views on most issues, but on Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, they agree. And so what you see is that uh, this is actually creating new coalitions and strange bedfellows. And I actually welcome that. I think it's a wonderful thing. You're seeing bipartisan cooperation. We saw that in Wyoming. The senator in Wyoming who's in charge of the blockchain select committee, there, there, there's a representative who's a Republican and a senator who's a Democrat. And the senator 
is, is by far the most active and most, most visible for the Wyoming blockchain initiative now. And he's a Democrat. And so, you know, a lot of the bills that Wyoming passed were bipartisan, veto proof, uh, and, you know, strange bedfellows. You wouldn't have necessarily expected these coalitions to be formed around this issue. And so uh, long story short, I think it is an election issue. I happen to know that there are folks in the Democratic Party who are concerned about the anti-crypto stance um, and, and some things that may be coming down the pike as being something that could blow back among these 40 million Americans who own crypto. And um, and they don't necessarily want to to bring a big anti-crypto push right in front of the uh, uh, right in front of the election. And by the way, again, that's not necessarily just the Democrats. There are there are there's certainly, you know, that more the, the neocon wing of the Republican Party is also pretty anti-crypto. So it's not just the Democrats. It's also certain wings of the Republican. It's the probably the more more so the progressives, although not all. Um, and then the neocons on the Republican side tend to be anti-crypto, which is what creates these interesting um, coalitions. And, uh, and, and it doesn't cut across traditional party lines. And I think that's a wonderful thing. That does tell me there's a chance that, that the, the Lummis-Gillibrand bill does end up getting passed and signed into law at some point in the next year or two, because um, you will get aisle crossers on that. Love to hear it. it. It sounds like a very positive and hopeful future for the Bitcoin ecosystem to thrive. Uh, Caitlin, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that uh, we're about at the end of it. I wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe make one last comment or share any thoughts that we didn't get to. We didn't talk much about lightning and I am a big fan of lightning. Uh, I, I do believe that as a scaling tool, that is an incredibly strong and and um, great prospect for the Bitcoin network. And it's tied to Bitcoin natively, which is why it's so important. And that's how we're going to see Bitcoin scale. Having been through the different Bitcoin cycles, you know, I remember back in 2014 when Overstock.com first announced that it would start to accept Bitcoin as payments. Uh, and, you know, Folks did. I bought all. I bought all my Christmas presents on Overstock.com with Bitcoin that year. I don't think about how how valuable that that would be if I'd held on to it now. Because the honest truth is, that's how we built the network, right? If you weren't using it, the network wasn't being built. But now, it most most folks won't use it for a twenty dollar purchase. Most folks are now um, Bitcoin is really being used for high value transactions, and it's Lightning that is the scaling network and. I think we will see, we, we now have a third layer on network with the Tarot protocol. I'm really excited about all the engineering that's that's happening. And, and I'll close by saying again, um, the engineers are the most important people in the Bitcoin industry. Thank you to all of you. You're the ones who keep it going. And uh, the, the the rest of us noobs are, uh, <laughs> are are eternally grateful to you because of what you've, what you've done and continue to do and keep doing because uh, this is powerful stuff and really exciting. And I appreciate you guys having me on. We've tried to do this for a while and had this scheduled for a while. And I'm glad I was able to make it on. Really an honor to be with you today. So Thank you for joining us. This this was an absolute treat. It looks like there's an excuse for you to come back so we can actually have an in-depth conversation about lightning. Sounds, sounds great. Appreciate it. Thanks so Thank much, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. <laughs>